Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to try and finish the chapter tonight, verses 16 through 38. I'm uh, in the middle of a head cold like many of you, so I'll try not to sputter too much. Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 38. An elite Israeli military unit responsible for cyber warfare has been accused of creating a virus that crippled Iran's computer systems and stopped work on its nuclear power station. The virus is called Stuxnet. According to Reuters news service, Symantec and Kapersky Labs both speculated that Stuxnet was specifically targeted to hit Iran and that the construction of such a virus likely required nation-state support to develop. In other words, it was developed by a nation uh, uh, with a specific purpose. Langner Communications has directly stated that the Boucher nuclear power plant is Stuxnet's intended target. Computer experts discovered a biblical reference embedded in the code of the computer worm that has pointed to Israel as the origin of the cyber attack. The code contains the word myrtus, which is the Latin biological term for the myrtle tree. The Hebrew word for myrtle, Hadassah, was the birth name of Esther, Jewish queen of Persia. In the Bible, the book of Esther tells how the queen preempted an attack on the country's Jewish population and then persuaded her husband to launch an attack before being attacked themselves. So I think, uh, well, I'm going to keep my comments to myself. I don't want to get arrested or anything. but. But you know what? The children of Israel are back in their land, and they intend to stay there. More than that, God has brought them back for the last time in order to fulfill all his many promises to them. Our text in Ezekiel is about the return of the Jews to their land. It is a prophecy coming true before our very eyes. Now, the opening verses of chapter 36, verses 1 through 15, we saw a couple of weeks ago they were about the restoration of the land itself. We saw in those verses the prediction that the land would become fruitful and productive in the last days. And we said that this is true of Israel today, which has emerged as a leader in world agriculture. There have also been recent discoveries of vast natural gas and oil fields uh, uh, that belong to Israel. And so that prophecy is definitely coming true. The rest of chapter 36 is about the restoration of the people to the land. Ezekiel begins by discussing a little of the history behind their dispersion, verses 16 through 21. And so beginning in verse 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... When the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. And to me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols, which uh, they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations... Wherever they went, they profaned my holy name when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Under the law of Moses, certain bodily discharges, especially of blood, 
rendered a person unable to participate in worship. It was therefore an image the Jews were constantly aware of. It would appall them to see someone with a discharge of blood step anywhere near the temple. God used that as an illustration to say that the whole nation was like that, defiled by the shedding of blood. This they had done both literally and figuratively. Literally, they had degenerated into a violent society shedding blood on the land. Figuratively, it refers to the fact that the leaders were misappropriating the law. They were oppressing the people, especially those most in need of the protection of the law. Now, the dispersion of the Jews brought God's name into reproach. It seemed to bystanders, especially the Gentile nations, as they looked on, as if God was not powerful enough to preserve his own people in their land. In fact, the Lord loved them so much that he was willing to suffer reproach if that's what it meant to discipline them. And so he loved them so much that I have to discipline you. And since you're a nation and since I've promised you the land, my discipline is to disperse you from the land throughout the earth. And as a, in the meantime, he would have to bear the reproach of all the Gentile nations, pagan nations who associated that with a powerlessness, uh, feeling their God was therefore more imp uh, impressive than God, the God of the Hebrews. But the Lord is willing to bear that for their sake. Now, in verse 22, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I don't do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. A few times God mentions that his name has been profaned by his people over the years. They ought to have carried God's name to the Gentiles in order to save them, Instead, their representation of God was like profanity. I'm always stunned when I remember that part of the mission of Israel was to reveal God to the rest of the world because when you read about the Jews in the New Testament that Jesus encountered, the Jewish leaders and all, um, they seemed to care less about the Gentiles. In fact, they hated the Gentiles. In fact, they hated everybody uh, except their own tiny, small group within the group. Uh, and and uh, yet God had intended for this nation, this tiny nation that had no merit of itself, uh, to be a, a display of his grace and of his mercy and of his love. Uh, and instead, even after he dispersed them, he says they went on profaning his name uh, by not properly representing him. Now, profanity, uh, profaning or profanity, it doesn't mean swearing or using foul language. It can include that, but it really means anything that is inappropriate for worship of God in his temple. The Greek word translated profane means outside the temple. And so it means something that would be inappropriate in the temple in the presence of God. Now, without wanting to become a weird traditionalist or being accused of legalism, I think that sometimes we have to admit that there are things that are inappropriate in the worship of the Lord. Uh, one trend that I've noticed and I've mentioned to you a few times is uh, it's become 
sort of edgy and contemporary for pastors to sneak swear words, cuss words, profanity into their sermon. Not by mistake, you know, every now and then I, I see a clip on YouTube where somebody says something that they shouldn't have said, you know, and then they're totally embarrassed. I mean, this is done on purpose. And then the congregation thinks, wow, that's, that's cool. My pastor can cuss. And, and it, it's kind of an edgy thing. If you've never heard anybody do this, well, then God bless you. Uh, and, because I just think it's inappropriate. Uh, and uh, a lot of people don't. Uh, another area, this, you know, that I, this is just personal to me. Another thing that's sneaking into the church more and more is uh, worship teams playing blatantly secular songs by bands that are totally anti-Christ. Uh, but, you know, I, I read on Facebook sometimes people, you know, that I follow from different uh, states and cities and all, they say, oh, you know, our worship team played this, uh, this uh, Black Eyed Peas song today. And, and they'll name the song and then I'll go and look at the lyrics and I'll think, wow, on what planet does that belong in the temple of the Lord? You know, and so it's just interesting. You know, people want to be edgy. They want to be contemporary. Uh, they want to reach, uh, you know, certain people. Uh, that's the that's the excuse. Sometimes I think they just want to be weird, to be honest with you. You know, they just want to do something different. But I'm not here to judge motives. I just think that there are, there are always going to be some things that are inappropriate uh, when it comes to worshiping the Lord. Now, as we await the return of the Lord, more and more things are going to be suggested that we introduce them into worship. I think we need to be open to change and growth, uh, but we need to be careful of stuff that is really inappropriate. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we're going to draw a line and, um, you know, maybe this wouldn't have been totally inappropriate, but we just don't feel totally comfortable with it. Some things are always going to be inappropriate. And we need to just navigate through that, stay contemporary, but also stay worshipful. Verse 24, he says, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. <coughs> Excuse me. About once a year or so, we do a prophecy update about the return of Jews from all over the world to modern Israel. Aliyah is the word used to describe the immigration of Jews back to the land of Israel. That's the Hebrew word, Aliyah. Someone who makes Aliyah is called Ola or Olim if it's plural. On September 15th, the Jerusalem Post posted a story titled, uh, Nearly 18,000 Immigrants Arrived This Year. The article went on to point out that the number of Jews making Aliyah continues to rise each year. Even with all the massive problems that are happening in Israel, the danger that they face uh, imminently day to day, uh, and recently the Iranian threat with the nuclear thing and all that, Jews from all over the world are making Aliyah and coming back to Israel to settle and these aren't believing Jews. They're, they're not Christians that, that want to be there when everything comes down. I mean, these are just Jews that are being supernaturally drawn back to the land. This is happening just like Ezekiel said it would happen 2,500 years ago. The nation of Israel is the fulfillment of prophecy right before our very eyes. Now, verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. 
I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, this is a promise to the Jews. It hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen in the future. And a lot of what we're going to read tonight and then on into chapters um, uh, 37, 38, 39, uh, those are going to deal with exactly how God accomplishes this. How it is that God right now regathering the Jews, how they're going to end up what we would say born again and filled with the spirit and cleansed and knowing him and walking with him. And one of the ways that that is going to be accomplished, one of the primary means for accomplishing this is that God will put Israel through what the Bible calls the tribulation or the great tribulation. Now, most of you know this already, but the tribulation is that seven year period of time at the end of our current history during which God is going to pour out his wrath upon the earth, preparing it for the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is described in great detail in the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last book of the Bible, starting in chapter six and going through about chapter 19. You follow the opening of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets and the, uh, you know, the pouring out of the bowls and all. And, and you see what's going to be happening on the earth for that seven year period of time. Now, I was thinking about this today. A lot of people argue about, you know, the tribulation and the church and will the church go through the tribulation and all of that kind of stuff. The tribulation makes no sense unless you understand it is primarily about God preparing the nation of Israel to receive Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It's called in the Bible the time of Jacob's trouble, referring to the descendants of the patriarch Jacob, whose name was changed uh, to Israel. So it's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's primarily about Israel, the real descendants of Jacob, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Uh, Other people will have to go through it, people who are alive at that time, but really it's about Israel. And the only way that you can be confused about this is if you're confused about God's plan for the nation of Israel. Uh, And so, you know, it makes perfect sense that the church will be removed, the church is taken out, and then God is going to finish what he started and fulfill all of his prophecies to the nation of Israel. And it's going to take... First, they're, as we'll see in a moment, first they're going to have to receive the man they think is their Messiah, who is the Antichrist. They're going to have to be betrayed by him, persecuted by him, to receive Jesus Christ in his second coming and be uh, the fulfillment of all the promises. People who say the church must go through the tribulation in order to somehow be purified are wrong on two counts. If you talk to people who believe that believe church age believers like us will have to go through the tribulation one of the things they always say is that it is to purify the church and get it ready for the coming of Jesus Christ well first it's the time God has set aside to deal with Israel not the church it's not called the time of Jesus's bride's trouble it's called the time of Jacob's trouble and you and I are not Jews we are not the descendants the physical descendants of Uh, Israel and if we were in this age and part of the church we're still going to be raptured Uh, so that's the first problem but second Jesus said clearly that he would purify his church and he said he would do it how 
by the washing of the water of the word of God. It's a whole different program. The church does not, the, the last day's church on earth doesn't need to be purified by the fire of a great tribulation in order to be made ready. In fact, to me, that despises the grace of God which, by which Jesus says, I'm going to make you ready by the washing of the water of the Word of God. And so, I don't have any patience anymore for people who think we're going through the tribulation. I really don't. They can still be Christians. They are Christians. There's lots of different ways of looking at this, but I'm just, I don't even, I'm, I just smile and ask them how many rations they have stored up, how much water they have, and uh, if they're right, I tell them, look, if you're right, I'll be at your door. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I really don't want to talk because it's not about the church. It's about the nation of Israel. First half of the Great Tribulation will be a time of relative peace for the Jews because that man we know as the Antichrist, he's going to enforce a peace treaty with Israel that allows them to rebuild their temple and to worship on the mount. But exactly halfway through the seven years, the Antichrist enters that temple. He stops the Jewish sacrifices. He desecrates the temple by erecting a statue of himself and demands that he be worshipped as God. The Jewish people will be outraged. They refuse to bow down. When they do, the Antichrist becomes obsessed with destroying them. That will be his primary goal during the second half of the tribulation. This is when Jesus says on the, uh, in the Olivet Discourse, he says, man, if you're in Jerusalem, when that happens, get out of Dodge. Get out of town fast. Run for your life. Don't go home. Don't grab anything. Just get out because all hell is going to break loose on the earth against the Jews. Persecution of the Jews is going to be fierce, but God will supernaturally protect them. At the return of Jesus in his second coming, all the Jews alive on earth will see him, and the Bible says they will be saved. Now, all of this is anticipated in verses 25 through 27, which is a summary of what God is going to do through the tribulation, saving them and giving them this new heart and new spirit. <clears throat> Verse 28 follows the second coming. It's the establishment of the kingdom. Verse 28 says, Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. This takes place after the great tribulation, after the second coming. The Lord establishes a kingdom on the earth. We read in the Revelation that it lasts for 1,000 years. Israel will dwell in the land and worship the Lord. The Lord will rule over the earth from Jerusalem. You can read all about this in chapter 20 of the Revelation. Verse 29, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Both land and people will finally be blessed and be a blessing as God has intended all along. Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Then as a summary of what the Lord has been talking to them about, then or in the last days we would say through the tribulation and by his second coming, Israel will come to see themselves as uh, needing salvation that only Jesus can provide and they will be saved. Verse 32, not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your ways, 
O house of Israel. It's not for any worth or worthiness in them. It's not for any merit or desert of, uh, desert of, their, uh, of theirs. Not for any goodness in them or works of righteousness done by them. God chose Israel to reveal his own nature of love and grace. Uh, they're privileged by grace, not by merit. They haven't earned it. Which, and this is always so funny about religious groups. Um, you always, if you're just religious, you always end up thinking there's something special about you, not special about God in choosing you, uh, that you're the chosen ones. I know growing up in, in uh, a Catholic home, even though we, we only went to church long enough to, to get the ritual part of it done, you know, you're baptized and then you went to catechism and then you had, you know, confession and communion and finally confirmation and then you're done, you know, where I came from. You're on your way to heaven or purgatory or someplace that wasn't as bad as hell. And, uh, you know, but you had a sense of privilege, like somehow you had been chosen by God for your merit. When in reality, God says, no, it has nothing to do with you. It's to reveal my grace and my mercy. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. A person believes God. God counts it for them for righteousness based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's how saints were saved in the Old Testament as well as the New. When I first got saved, coming out of the tradition I had come out of, I assumed, I, I didn't know any better, I thought that if you were in the Old Testament, you kept the law and then you were saved. And I thought it was pretty cool in the New Testament, you didn't have to do that anymore. It wasn't until I studied the book of Romans I realized that Abraham got saved the same way we get saved. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It had nothing to do with keeping law. In fact, later on I realized that you can't keep God's law. No one can keep God's law perfectly except for Jesus Christ. You have to be born again. And so that's, there's only one way to be saved. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's how Adam and Eve were saved in the garden. It's how any saint has been saved and will be saved for all of history. Verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the wasted, desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. The land and the people of Israel will be an illustration of the grace of God to the other nations of the world in the future kingdom on earth. Verse 36, Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Jesus once said that if he didn't return when he did, at the end of the great tribulation, no one on earth would be left alive much of the earth's population will be killed during the Great Tribulation. But there will be Jews who remain and believe, and among those who remain there will be Gentiles who will also enter into the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now the chapter ends with a picture of kingdom life on the earth in those days. Verse 37, Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock. Like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men, then they shall know that I am the Lord. Three times a year, Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims attending the mandatory feasts. In the future kingdom, it will be as if Jerusalem is always swelled with flocks of Jews 
who have come to inquire of and worship the Lord. In other words, I think what he's getting at here is it won't be just a mandatory legal requirement. Uh, Jerusalem will be filled with Jews and others as well who want to hear the word of the Lord. And they won't have to wait for the feasts and the festivals, even though those will be happening. The place will just be abuzz with people coming to see the Lord and to inquire of the Lord. The land of Israel has been and is being restored. Just a few decades ago, it was a desert wasteland. Today it produces much of the world's agriculture and, as I said, oil and natural gas in Israel's control has been found there. More importantly, Aliyah is happening. God's people are returning to the land from all the other nations of the earth and it's inexplicable to me why they're doing that. Uh, You know, it's like some kind of a homing device has gone off because these are unbelieving Jews uh, in, in terms of believing in Jesus Christ who are coming to a place of danger. Uh, they're, they're not, I mean, you can understand from certain persecuted countries, you know, maybe Jews coming from Russia and places like that where they're being persecuted openly. But you're talking about Jews from Europe and from America, from all over the free world who are just getting up one day and saying, I want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to go back to Israel. And, of course, we would attribute that to the moving of God upon their unbelieving hearts, drawing them back in these last days for the last time. This is the last time that Israel will be drawn into their land. They're not going to be displaced again. These are the last days that we read about in the Bible. What Ezekiel saw prophetically, we are seeing literally take place. Uh, and, And any rational, thoughtful person once they realize this, their jaw should drop and they should realize that God is the Lord. Amen? All right.